Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. An interest of mine is trying to follow the ever-changing patterns, demographics, and trends in religions around the world. Even though Classical Ideas has existed for over three years and is closing in on 200 episodes, examining what is happening around the world within a given worship or practice yields interesting conversation each and every time. It is this interest which brought me together with this episode's guest, Dr. Arlene Sanchez-Walsh. Dr. Sanchez-Walsh is a professor of religious studies and the author of the award-winning book, Latino Pentecostal Identity, which was released by Columbia University Press in 2003, as well as the book Pentecostals in America from Columbia University Press in 2018. She has served as a media expert for outlets such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and On Being with Krista Tippett, a show I love. She's also served as an expert on Latino and Latina religious history for the PBS series God in America. Our conversation on this episode is largely centered on her 2018 book, Pentecostals in America. We discuss Sanchez Walsh's academic path, the job of working as a historian and ethnographer of the Pentecostal religious community, and trends, demographics, and the past and present of Pentecostalism around the world. This conversation was a long time coming, and I'm grateful to Dr. Sanchez-Walsh for being patient and understanding with my less-than-amazing scheduling abilities in 2020. You can follow Dr. Arlene Sanchez-Walsh on Twitter at A-M-I-C-H-E-L-S-W. You can also follow me on Twitter at Classical underscore Ideas. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation on Pentecostals in America with Dr. Arlene Sanchez-Walsh. Dr. Arlene Sanchez-Walsh, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thanks a lot. It is a pleasure to have you. I'm wondering if you can spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit. All right. Well, uh, my name is Arlene Sanchez-Walsh. I'm originally from Los Angeles, and uh, um, 
I spent uh, five years in this business. Uh, I've, been, I've been doing this for 20 years, uh, a professor in religious studies currently at Azusa Pacific University. My first five years was at DePaul University in Chicago. But being a native Californian, uh, I gave Chicago winters five years and then it beat me <laughs> to the ground. And I just uh, escaped back to LA because I, uh, I can't function yeah. in, in, in snow for four months. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah, that's uh, like I said, originally born here, um, all my family's here. And as we were talking off air, plan A was broadcasting. Mm. So I love this format. I love your show. And this is not a way to butter you up beforehand, but I love mm -hmm. it. And um, just really, really happy to be here. Plan B was academia. So that, that, that's usually the other way around yeah. for people in this business, as you know. But uh, so this is my plan B. And so far in 20 years, it's worked out okay. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, um, I always like to start by asking guests a little bit about their path within life that led them into what it is that they have become professionally interested in, uh, what led them towards their areas of expertise. And I, I, you and I have been friends on Twitter for a long time. And um, I've seen you sort of like uh, as like a scholar of Pentecostalism within America. And I'm curious about your origin of your interest in Pentecostalism and how that interest led you through university, graduate school, and into the professoriate. Where did the Pentecostalism interest originate? All right, it originated in grad school, which is probably a little later than usual. Uh, my undergrad was at a state school, Cal State LA, um, and I wanted to do medieval Catholicism oh, cool. and uh, church history, things of that nature, and, and broad, broaden it out beyond kind of the staple church history. But uh, early on, I got the feeling that there were not going to be a lot of jobs for mm. a Latina from East L.A. to uh, teach medieval church history. You know, the market for that was shrinking if, if it was ever available at all. So when I went to grad school at Claremont, my mentor, who she's still my mentor, Vicky Ruiz, um, she basically told me. I told her what I wanted to do. I said, well, I had changed my trajectory from then on. And I said, I want to do 19th century alternative religions. And she said, well, you're never going to get a job. <laughs> so you need to do something that's closer to you, something that's interesting to you, and something preferably within your ethnic background. And that's mm. just the reality. And I said, okay. So nobody's going to hire me to do anything outside my phenotype. And she said, uh, unfortunately, no. This is just the way academia is. And she's savvy. She's been around for a long time. She's one of the pioneers of Chicana history in the United States. Uh, so I took the advice uh, well. And then I just started looking at storefront churches in my neighborhood. And I said, I remember seeing these walking home from school. I remember kind of being afraid of them a little because they were kind of loud and boisterous. And I didn't know what was going on there. Uh, as a point of background, I was uh, born and raised Catholic. Mm. So this was completely foreign to me. So um, I just decided this would be interesting. And the more I learned about it, it was a completely new field, completely new um, religious movement that I had never heard of before. And I just decided, oh, this is, this is something I can sink my teeth into. Because another point of advice Vicky gave me was, you need to find something you're going to enjoy for about 10 years. <laughs> that you're going to love and not get sick of because this will mark you for almost the rest of your professional career. So you need to really, really be interested in this. Otherwise, 
it's not going to work. Interesting. Well, and I noticed in the beginning here, I have the book right here. And I noticed okay. that you have de a dedication to Dr. Ruiz here, right here in the beginning. Fantastic. <laughs> do you, I'm just curious, you mentioned that um, you, there weren't a lot of hires outside of your, you said your phenotype within the fields yeah. Uh, yeah. in academia. Have you seen that changing at all across the course of your career? Or would you say that's still kind of accurate? I think it's fairly accurate, unfortunately. I mean, if, if you, uh, yeah, and you know the field, of, uh, I'm sure, with, of American religion, if you will, broadly, historians and religious studies folks, PhDs, um, it's unusual for somebody to be hired straight up as a Latina to teach American religion. Mm. Normally, they have to be kind of uh, double-oriented to teach American religion something about Latino Catholicism or Latino new religions or a Latina feminist um, theology, something along those lines. They have to fall into certain camps and because simply because of the hiring, uh, it's, just, um, it's just such a difficult market anyway. So I, I wouldn't doubt that there's probably been quite a few uh, Latinas who've started their PhD at some point and were steered into particular fields, giving them a broader, uh, a better chance of getting a job. Interesting. Well, and I know along your path as well, so we're, we're mostly going to talk about your book, Pentecostals in America today, but I noticed that you also have another book out, uh, Latino Pentecostal Identity, Evangelical Faith, Self, and Society, which came out in 2003. Was that work from that, that other book based on your dissertation research for your PhD? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, is that book still available as well for people to read? It is. It is. Yes. It's uh, kind of put me on the map. You know, I mean, as you know, this is a small little world, yeah. you know, that we inhabit. And uh, it, uh, it's become, it was the first book to deal with Latino Pentecostal identities, issues of conversion. You know, that's been a hot topic for quite a while now. Why are Latinos leaving the Catholic Church is kind of the, the, the overhanging question. And then my book came out early enough that at least it gave some people a few answers that they were looking for. So that's kind of set me up for media interviews and things of that nature. Excellent. Well, so let's go into your, your most recent book, um, which you sent me a few months back. And, uh, you know, during our, during our pandemic year that we're having. So your fantastic book, Pentecostals in America, is out from Columbia University Press. And this book seems to culminate in over 20 years of navigating this space for you as a scholar. Um, and the opening line is just so splendid and captivating. So Pentecostals tell great stories. And then later you write, the claims Pentecostals make in narratives are astounding. And I love those lines. And they, they speak to each other within the first uh, few pages of the book. And I'm wondering if you can tell the listener about the importance of narrative and story within Pentecostalism. Sure. Uh Narratives are how Pentecostal faith gets transmitted, if you will. Um, people hear about these miraculous things. They hear about things that normally you would think of, as I wrote in the book, astounding, unbelievable, remarkable, but they hear it first, right? And the reason why I didn't mention seeing as important or visual proof, if you will, is because these stories travel. They travel from, from place to place, from pastor to pastor, from church to church, and they hear about each other. They hear about all these claims. It's impossible for them to have been all to all these places. But there's a, 
a belief system built around these narratives. And that's kind of what I wanted to get across, um, is that it's, it's essential to the faith to have these narratives underlying belief system, ritual, uh, worship, all the rest of it really for me is built on the initial story of, of what happens to you when you become Pentecostal. Mm. Well, and the origin story of Pentecostalism is something that I'm really just sort of exploring for the first time myself. Like so many of the topics that I talk about on the show are all brand new to me in so many ways. And so it seems like the origin story of Pentecostalism is contested. You list many founders who claim the original like foundation of it uh, within the book. What can you say about the founding of Pentecostalism that casual listeners or new learners such as myself to this topic should know about the beginning and origin story? Yeah, well, I guess I can start with the more accepted um, origin story, even though I take, I go to great lengths in the book to try and diminish it. <laughs> I'll, st- mm-hmm. I'll, start, I'll start with it, you know. Well, for- and then let's talk about why you diminish it. Okay, all right. Um, Azusa Street. The Azusa Street revival that occurred in April 1906 lasted about two and a half, three years. Uh, that is the pinnacle, if you will, of historiography for people who want to point to one place where it might have started because it branched out from there to all these different places. The contested nature of that is people want to say that it happened in Chicago. They want to go further, obviously, and say that it happened globally in India, in Korea, in Wales. And so there's all kinds of North North Carolina, you know, there's mm. another says because there's evidence of some Pentecostal revivalism is late 19th century called that then so that's what i meant by contested there's all these places and movements that come out of these places that want to claim it because for insiders it's important it's important that they kind of have a flag to post and say it started here because for insiders it's a beginning of a revival it's the beginning it it has theological significance aside from geography and things of that nature it has this is where God moved, right? And that's how they would talk about it, is it God moved here first. Mm. And it, it's important. It's important to be first. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the Azusa Street Revival, which yeah. seems to be like a, a, a really important event. Can you talk a little bit about more about what that was like, maybe what the, the setting was like, who was there, things like that? Sure, sure. It's, it's a street that very much like uh, most places in downtown LA is now a parking lot. Mm. (laughs) It's in the middle of, if you know Los Angeles at all, it's in the middle of little Tokyo, which is one of the oldest section of downtown LA. Um, It originally began a little further West of that area on a, in a a house uh, on a nearby street called Bonnie Bray. And it was essentially a group of people seeking a deeper experience having heard about these experiences coming from Houston and other parts of the country, there was a traveling preacher who had been invited to come over and preach. His name was William Seymour. And he had been invited to come and preach this new Pentecostal revival. And when he did, he was invited to a church that is called the Holiness Church that is kind of a precursor to Pentecostalism. And immediately 
when he started preaching this and saying that there's a new baptism, that it's experiential, that it, that it will lead you to do this thing called speaking in tongues, he was immediately kicked out <laughs> mm. of, of these holiness meetings because there's contention uh, amongst those two groups as well. All right. But it begins with William Seymour at Bonnie Bray Street and a group of his followers. They outgrow that little house and they find a larger house in downtown Los Angeles called the Azusa Street Mission. That's the origin of the name, Azusa Street Mission. And it starts in April. They are praying and praying and praying. They have this experience and it starts from there. Um, and, it, it, and because so many of the original uh, important pioneers of the movement went to Los Angeles, uh, received training from Seymour, and also received what is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit there, I think that's why Azusa Street is so significant, because it sent out hundreds and hundreds of people from that one place to go take this Pentecostal message literally globally. Mm. Well, it's not lost on me as well that you are a Los Angelino, and this is so much of this is Los Angeles centric. How does that how does that fit in with this with your uh, your connection to this topic? Yeah, well, I wanted I've always wanted to do a larger history of uh, religious history of Los Angeles, mm. and there, there's only been one book that has kind of tried to. It's it's rather it's an older book now by Michael Ng. I forget the title right now, but uh, and it's a religious history of Los Angeles, but it came out either late 80s, early 90s. And I've always wanted to do something like that to, to kind of, because Los Angeles is fantastic. Mm, I mean, yes. not only does it have Pentecostalism, um, it has roots in the early holiness movement, as I mentioned. Uh, there are so many just fabulous religious movements that come out of Los Angeles. One of Pentecostalism's earliest pioneers, Amy Semple McPherson, You've heard of her, the, mm -hmm. the founder of the Foursquare denomination. She based herself here. She's not from here, but she based herself here in Los Angeles. And then, you know, we can get into dozens and dozens of other religious movements yeah. that come out of here that are just great. I mean, if you like religion, this is a fabulous city to, uh, to do some research in. That is amazing. Okay, so... Um, in the book, you write how the origins of Pentecostalism are very interracial. Um, and I'm curious if you can say a little bit about what you think everybody should know about the interracial origins. Well, again, that's part of the contested era or yeah. the contested um, narrative of Pentecostal history, right? Uh, insiders, those that, that have some sympathy towards Pentecostalism, probably because they're from that movement or not, but they just really, really have sympathy for what appeared to be an interracial harmony inter in a time, obviously, in Jim Crow America, where interracial meetings in practically half of the country were banned and illegal, that this is happening in 1906, you know, which is shocking and surprising. So yes, I understand the um, significance of meeting with all of these different uh, groups. And yes, there were Asians, there were Latinos, mostly Mexican-American and Mexicanos, African-Americans, uh, Anglo-Americans. It was a mix. It was a mix. Uh, I think my question in the book is how that picture has been used to suggest that there was this egalitarianism 
and that there was more racial harmony than there actually was. Interesting. Right? And that, that is what I take issue with. And I took issue with it in the, my first book, um, basically because one of the more famous lines of um, one of the Pentecostal pioneers, I believe it was Frank Bartleman, who said the, uh, the color line had been washed away in the blood. Mm. Okay? Very, very famous line. And it's still used today. It's still used today by uh, historians, theologians, uh, and certainly many, many um, followers of the faith. And I just found that to be overwrought <laughs> and not put in context. Uh, you know, what else was Frank Bartleman going to say? Um, why haven't we put this in context of Los Angeles, of Southern California, and of the United States in general? Where it's like, this is a very rare thing, but did it actually have any legs? Did it actually lead to uh, egalitarianism? Did it actually lead to racial harmony beyond these three years? Did any of that actually happen? Or are we just really satisfied with slogans mm. uh, about what might have been or what was possible, but didn't actually ever materialize? Interesting. How does gender or the inequality of gender or equality of gender play a role in those early years? I think that's also very much along the racial track, where, of course, in many um, places, you just wouldn't have women in pulpits at all. Mm. Uh, and so the idea that women were there, that they were co-leaders or they were leading, at least, that they were... Uh, standing side by side with men in the same worship space. Again, the, the snapshot, if you will, is this is an incredible thing. This leads to gender equality. This leads to this. This leads to that. My question to followers, to fellow historians, is did it though? Did it really do that? Uh, or again, are we enamored of the snapshot of how incredible that picture must have been in 1906? to extrapolate from that, this grand gender equality that must have flourished after that. And there's very little evidence that gender equality flourished in churches after that, particularly Pentecostal churches. The, fairly quickly, Pentecostal churches started shutting down women preaching. Uh, they started, when they started organizing as official denominations, uh, many of them immediately started writing their bylaws to exclude women from the pastorate. So that's, that's my, my criticism, my argument, is that many people are enamored of the snapshot. And they, again, don't, don't see that much of this did not materialize on the ground. Mm. Okay, well, the, the history of this entire movement is truly interesting. Um, and in the book, you pay homage sort of to the legion of grassroots scholars church historians and lay people who should be thanked for preserving a lot of the histories and records that you were able to dig into to present these stories to us today. How did you go about this process? Can you tell me a little bit about your archival digging for the project itself? Sure, sure. Well, uh, as you mentioned in the beginning, this is a culmination of about 20 years yeah. of my scholarly work. Uh, so it begins a lot with... Um, you know, scouring through, and, and many of your listeners may not know, remember what this is, microfiche. Yeah. 
you know, where you'd put it in readers and lose your eyesight because, you know, the thing would just span through so quickly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, straight on through to digitized a record available or to any actually. So um, it starts from a, a lot of digging in church denominational records uh, just to look at magazines and newspapers. I got a lot from magazines and newspapers uh, because that's how you, that's really the only way that I could capture those early years. And in terms of the stories, because that's what I was trying to do is capture these stories about what they were, what was most important about these stories. Uh, so I, I did a lot of digging with the Assemblies of God archives, for example. They've got really, really fabulous archives. Uh, the people at the Dixon Pentecostal Center, which I believe is the Church of God archive, did a lot of good work for me in terms of uh, helping me find things. Um, and because some of this was not in archives, uh, a lot of this, and, and I don't know if you know this about me or not, is uh, my first book was based on a lot of ethnographic work. I literally mm. sat in church. I sat in churches and I did dozens of interviews. So a lot of my, it, I started every chapter with like these little vignettes. Mm. And all of those vignettes happened. <laughs> and they're all kind of culminations of my 20 years of sitting in churches yeah. and listening to these stories and writing things down. So it's a compilation of old-fashioned historical archival work and ethnographic field work, which has kind of been the hallmark of most of my writing, has been to kind of combine both of those methods. I'm a big fan of ethnographic works because to me, like I want to feel stuff as I'm yes. reading things. And I feel like I, ethnographic work brings out that, like the work of Liz Bucar and Alyssa Maldonado Estrada, and then your yes. work as well. I mean, that is like really the, the scholarly work that speaks to me personally. Oh, good. Good, good. I'm glad. So you describe in the book that like all of these, all these archival diggings and these experiences that you've had researching over the past couple of decades allows you to sort of highlight some possibly unheard voices. Um, did you set out to do that on purpose or was that something that you kind of like accidentally uh, discovered along the way? I set out to do that on purpose because they're in looking briefly at Pentecostal histories. Um, a lot of it had been general histories of the movement. Uh, good work, good work in terms of things that you would never find. Uh, but still fairly general overviews. And then there was your standard biographies of great men and great women. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's just not how I was trained, you know. And I was trained to kind of do the history from the bottom up idea and to go get the story, you know, to go sit with people, to go interview people, um, to experience this for myself, if you will, to kind of really get in, because I don't know how else you can describe Pentecostalism unless you've had some experience in these churches. It, uh, to me, it would be very difficult to do a history of it without having seen it or heard yeah. it. It is visual, it's, it's auditory, it's, it's tactile. There's yeah. just so much there that I, I, that's what I set out to do is to kind of do, I guess, to borrow from another, uh, I don't know if it's a discipline, another field, kind of method history, you know, to kind of get into the veneer of what it is that I'm studying. Gotcha. Well, and there, there's some variations that you describe within the book between Pentecostals and other Christians. 
And I'm curious if you, what do you think are like some of the most glaring and essential differences for people who are casually interested in religion and want to know about the contrast between Pentecostalism and maybe other Christian denominations? What are some of the starkest contrasts between these Christian traditions that sets Pentecostals practice out the most? Uh, Clearly, I think it would be worship worship styles. Uh, and all Christian groups have a particular worship style for some of the uh, traditional uh, older Christian denominations or branches, Catholicism, Orthodoxy. It's liturgy, liturgy heavy. Um, in many cases, it's very quiet and, uh, and orderly. You know, there's a way you do these things and you don't deviate from that because it's not allowed. Uh, in Protestantism, the high, uh, the high liturgical orders, Anglicans, Presbyterians, Lutherans, again, that would be the same thing. There's an orderliness. There is um, a process. Pentecostalism, its worship style is ecstatic. Uh, it almost follows no order. I mean, it has an order of service, in, if you will, but if the spirit moves and you decide you need to worship for another half hour, 40 minutes, you'll do that. Mm. So you'll move away from, well, where's the sermon? Where did we get to the rest of it? Oh, we're not doing that yet. God is moving and we're going to worship another half hour. So sit down or do whatever you're going to do. Um, it's uniquely different from other groups in that it uh, really, really places its emphasis on the work of the third person of the Trinity Please don't ask me to explain the Trinity, but the third person of the Trinity, <laughs> which is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is active, still works, still does all of these things that were uh, uh, recorded or written about uh, in the New Testament. And one of the key ideas in Pentecostalism is all of those things that are mentioned are still possible today. Mm-hmm. And they attest to it and they tell stories about it. So that's what I set out to do is to try to capture some of those stories. Excellent. Well, I'm wondering if you've spoken at all to any of your, you know, Pentecostal friends and colleagues and contacts in recent months about how their how their their worship has been changed and how they're adapting during the pandemic of 2020. I have. I have. It's interesting. Uh, most most of my friends are academics <laughs> uh, who either come from Pentecostal uh, backgrounds or study Pentecostalism and have a Pentecostal background somewhere back there, you know, that they kind of grab to mm-hmm. understand, um, or they're actively in groups today. It's been kind of interesting. Um, I would say the grassroots uh, are, especially if I'm just going to point to California, uh, deeply uh, troubled by the fact that they can't meet. Mm. They can't worship inside, or they, that they can't have wide open spaces to worship that they can't be close together, that they can't do things that they normally do. Because again, it's very embodied. It's very uh, open and communal. Uh, and as you know, we've shut that down. We've yeah. shut that down here for months now. Yeah. And several churches have uh, fought those. They've taken the governor to court. Uh, and many of the churches are Pentecostal. Mm. Not all, but many of them. Because they view it as an infringement on their religious rights. My um, academic friends who study Pentecostalism or are from those backgrounds, they kind of are bemused by this because they're like, 
don't you know there's a pandemic? Mm. Don't you know that you're going to spread this thing? It's a super spreader event. And you're not only are you going to potentially infect other people, people are going to infect you and you're going to take it back to your families, to your workplaces, you know, and they're just kind of, I, I, I don't want to say they're surprised. They're not surprised mm-hmm. by the resistance many Pentecostal groups have had to closing down of churches. They are, um, again, bemused, maybe a little worried, uh, but certainly not surprised because Pentecostals for need to worship and the need to worship communally much more important for groups of that nature. Um, yeah, because I can't see it being even remotely the same thing doing it in one's house by oneself, you know, because it just seems like it, it's so communal in that regard that it would just be uh, almost like phoning it in if you were stuck at home doing it. Yes, and it, there's something about being with other people who, again, are similarly situated in terms of a belief system and a worldview that when a pastor tells you, don't worry about COVID, we're prayed up here. It can't touch you. There Again, it's the narrative, right? I feel good about that. I feel at peace with that. And so it won't happen. Mm. Of course it does, because there have been documented cases of super spreader events happening from Pentecostal churches. But again, it's the narrative. It's the idea that that's what I've heard. I've heard that nothing happened here. I heard that God protected everybody. There was not one case. And that's what I'm going to claim for myself. And again, the fact that it, it's not quite true in reality doesn't really matter. Right? Mm. Because what matters is the story. What matters is what's been built in the worldview that says, this is what God said he's going to do. And I'm going to believe that. And allowing anything else into that framework is almost defeating the purpose of faith for them. Interesting. Wow, that is so fascinating. Okay, thank you for that. Because that's like totally current, what's going on right now. And I just love learning about that. Um, There is a a term in the book, which I have never heard before. Um, And it's just springing to mind all of a sudden. And that is the, I believe it's called eschaton. Yeah, eschaton, I think. Is that that how you say it, eschaton? I think, and I'm sure my the Greek-speaking New Testament folks who listen to you will say she doesn't know what she's talking about. That's true. I mean, I used it because I, I saw it in a magazine, in a Pentecostal magazine, and I wondered if they even knew what it was. Uh, because it sounds very, it's the apocalypse. Oh, okay. Like, it's the end of the world. <laughs> Interesting. What is the importance of that within, within Pentecostalism, Pentecostalism in America? Uh, well, it was the beginnings of this revival. In 1906, let's just take, for example, let's stick with Azusa Street so we can focus on that. We're supposed to usher in the end of days, which is another term for the apocalypse, the end of the world. Um, According to certain prophecies that were read into in the Old Testament, but to believe in Joel, was that God was going to send one last wave of revival. And then if people didn't respond to that, he was going to come and and basically we're all done, you know. and they took that to be the 20th century Pentecostal revival in America. Wow. Which, you know, and so that's, uh, and I do believe this, that there's been a lot of good history written about how that urgency of how Jesus is coming back. We need to 
preach this gospel. We need to get everybody uh, baptized in the Holy Spirit. We need to get out there and do missions to all the quote-unquote lost people in the world. We need to do all of this stuff because the urgency of he's coming back any minute now, right? Because we know this sign is exactly what is, what's in the Bible, and that's, uh, you can't deny that. So it's, at the beginning of the movement, it was essential to its growth. Mm. Um, and it's still very, very prominent. It's still extremely important that uh, I, in my time of sitting in Pentecostal churches, there probably wasn't a couple of months that didn't go by that I didn't hear a pastor or someone say, you, we're probably living in the last days. Mm. And this is over 20 years of field work, right? So we've been living in the last days for a long time. Yeah. And like I've been watching the news out from your neck of the woods and you see orange skies, you see the pandemic, uh, you see hurricanes ripping across Louisiana. And it's like, it's overwhelming how many things seem to be converging all at one time to go wrong at this like nadir of our, you know, modern society. Yeah, there's no doubt that if I uh, tuned into a couple of websites and podcasts and uh, was able to go to church you know, which I, which can't do right now, um, to go do some field work, uh, that this would be huge on the agenda of how all of these things are potent signs. Really, really, it's like, this is it. You mm. know, I guess the only thing that I tell my students and that I would tell your listeners is that it's always been the end, mm. right? I mean, and there have been, as you know, historically, uh, calamities that have wiped out hundreds of thousands of people in floods, for example, hundreds of thousands of people in through hunger, you know, through warfare. I mean, throughout human history, the question is, well, why here? Why would it, why wouldn't it be anywhere else? Well, it's very rare to take, um, sadly, anything else seriously globally, unless it's happening here. Mm. Gotcha. Well, let's talk about a little bit about what's gone on since you put out this book in 2018. Um, you break down the demographics in the book uh, at, as of 2018, but the book is a couple years old now. And I'm curious about some updated and latest like poll numbers that you've been tracking for like Pentecostal communities around the world, continent by continent. Um, what has changed in the past two years demographically? that is different from what you present in the book? It's relatively stable. It's relatively stable. It is uh, Pentecostalism globally is still growing in the developing world much faster than, than it is in the Western world. So Africa, Latin America, Asia, still hotbeds. Um, they've come to a, a lot of political power in places like Brazil, which is a, the largest Catholic and one of the largest Pentecostal nations in the world. That's mm. how big Brazil is, is that it can encapsulate both of those demographics in one country. Um, so it's fairly, it's relatively stable. It's relatively stable. Uh, the numbers vary, but if you want to say half a billion, 500 million, that would be close. And of course, that's not all Pentecostal. A lot of that is charismatic, which is, there's a distinction. Uh, charismatic is essentially anybody who's, who accepts Pentecostal theology about spiritual gifts and healing and worship style, but does not identify with Pentecostal denominations. They just happen to be charismatic in their own character and in their preference for worship. That could be Catholic, Anglican, uh, 
non-denominational, the kind of whole mega church non-denominational phenomenon that we see globally. A lot of those churches are Pentecostal, but you, they wouldn't call themselves that. Gotcha. Would that also be like the vineyard movement and things like that? Yes. Yes. Okay. It, very much. Excellent. Um, where is it? Is it declining quickly anywhere? You mentioned that it's growing a lot in the book. I'm curious if it's just sheer exponential growth everywhere or if there's like uh, decreases as well. It is, there are groups that are declining within it. Let's just say, for example, um, among white Pentecostals in the, in the United States, particularly in the classical denominations, those numbers are either stable or in decline, but they're made up for with growth among immigrants, Latino immigrants, uh, some African immigrants uh, in the back east and the east coast, um, Asian immigrants in certain areas of the United States. So you're seeing a demographic shift of who is Pentecostal in certain denominations. And in Europe, the same phenomenon, the largest uh, mega churches in England, for example, uh, tend to be African. Uh, so they're not, Brit- they're not British or English. They're African immigrant in their origins. Mm. I love the attention on the importance of immigration within the book. And as a several-time immigrant myself, um, I was curious about the importance of immigration within Pentecostalism. And, you know... I know there's a lot here to get into, um, but I'm curious if you can maybe take me through like a few examples and places uh, because you mentioned that immigration takes Pentecostalism of a, a, an original country and then adapts it to the character of the new place in which those immigrants find themselves. Can you maybe give me a couple examples of how that looks? Yeah, sure. Uh, Let's just say, um, and this may dovetail into a question that I saw earlier or in looking at some of your things. So hopefully this will dovetail well. Um, African Pentecostalism is heavily influenced by what's called a prosperity gospel. Mm. And when those churches, when people migrate from those areas to Europe, to the United States, they tend to bring that same emphasis with them. So they don't take on the character of kind of your established classical Pentecostal denomination here, uh, which many people have kind of uh, lamented, Pentecostals have lamented, is not as ecstatic and fun as it used to be. It's kind of become more staid, more institutionalized. African immigrants will bring it in and change it. Mm. And so we're, we are revitalizing this. We need to get back to the original intent again, to get fired up, as they say. And part of that is the belief that uh, God wants you to be prosperous all the time. God, God doesn't see any negative in your life, and God has this abundance for you everywhere. And all you have to do is claim it for yourself. So that's one concrete way that Pentecostalism brings things from one place to another, Pentecostal immigrants rather, bring things from one place to another and change the character of Pentecostalism wherever they bring it. Excellent. Well, and I love the, um, the, the, mo- the mention of the term prosperity gospel. Um, you know, because in the book, you describe Pentecostalism as a, as a growth industry, quote unquote growth industry, which, you know, maybe this will be surprising to some people, but um, 
I'm curious how this particular religious community about gr- is about growth and how it is an industry. Like, do, what do those two terms mean independently? And then how does that look religiously? I got you. Um, well, it's growth because that's their mandate. If they're not growing, they're not doing it right. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, it's harkens back to the early years that maybe the emphasis isn't on Jesus is coming tomorrow, but certainly we, the world is dying and people are dying without knowing Jesus. So they're going to hell. So all of these very black and white dichotomies of who goes to hell, who goes to heaven, who is saved, who isn't very much a part of the conversation. So growth is part of it's built in to the movement itself. Industry, what I meant by that, I think is that there are all of these organizations and and processes by which you become Pentecostal, you stay Pentecostal. If you fall away, there's a program for you to come back. There's a there's places all throughout life where Pentecostalism will meet you and attempt to get you back into the fold, right? So putting those things together, it's kind of a way to maintain itself while growing, mm. to maintain their kids while reaching out to others and bringing them in too. So it's kind of a multi-layered, multi-level organ- organization that keeps growing and keeps wanting to maintain their own people. Gotcha. Well, and it seems like the engine of Pentecostalism is two things, healing first and prosperity second. Is this material prosperity like houses, cars, money, or is it a different kind of prosperity that I'm overlooking? It's material. It's definitely material, and it's also health. Uh, a, a derogatory term for it has been called the health and wealth gospel, mm. right? Which uh, basically says God wants you healthy all the time, and God wants you wealthy all the time. So what this very unique brand or kind of offshoot of Pentecostalism or subset, whatever you like to call it, uh, has excised out the kind of classical Christian idea of suffering and basically says that was wrong. Whoever read that into, into our gospel, that's not true anymore. What God really wants is for you to be healthy, to never have a day, a sick day in your life. And if you do, it's because you don't have enough faith. All you have to do is claim your healing and it should happen and also wealthy. So if you're, if you have lack of any kind, not enough money to pay the rent, uh, if you don't have a job, if you want another car, if you want abundance in your life, the, the term abundance is used all the time because mm. material things sound, well, it sounds crass, right? So abundance is a more um, theological word. It, it helps. It's a more spiritual word, if you will. So it's, it, it, I think it ameliorates criticism that it's just about getting stuff. Yeah. Right. And so the whole idea is that God's prepared abundance. He has it stored for you. And what you have to do is line up your faith with that abundance and it all comes into your life. Interesting. But you have to keep having faith. It is fascinating. It is one of the more fascinating aspects of working on this as long as I have. That's just one of the more interesting subgroups that I've run into. That is absolutely interesting. Um, Yeah, because the idea and theme of power comes up throughout the book as well. And when Pentecostals think of like something being powerful, what what does that look like? Uh, That's what the Holy Spirit gives you. 
mm. right? That was that was its selling point, if you will. In the in the early years, if you read magazines or articles, or this is how again the faith was transmitted through all these testimonies, is that we had a powerful move of God, and everybody was healed. We had a powerful word from this pastor from the sigilist there's power in the holy spirit and so power from the holy spirit gives you this almost super natural definitely and super heroic idea that you can manifest all of these things so that's what i meant by incredible stories right i mean ordinary people with the power of the holy spirit can heal or can manifest abundance or can, and, and, you know, the stories go on from there. But that's what I meant by power. Well, I'm so interested in this book, too, because you've managed to take 20 years of, of archival and ethnographic research and boil it down to a slim volume. Like, this is, this is a tremendously powerful piece of work for being so concise and precise, but also so encapsulating of so many years of work. I mean, that must have been an insanely challenging process. That's why it took so long to write. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I just couldn't figure out how to do it so quickly in such a short amount of pages. And uh, it just kept getting lost. I think editing it took longer than actually writing it. Boiling down all these stories to what do I want to say? You know, where do I want to start? How do, am I going to write this? Amazing. Well, um, what is motivating you, your scholarship now? Where do you see yourself taking these topics in the coming years? Um, you know, it's always hard. It's like a second or third act or like a rookie season, you know, and like, what are you going to do now? Even though I'm not a rookie, I understand that. But uh, early Pentecostals demonstrated their, um, what shall we say, vociferous, <laughs> Uh, antipathy towards Catholics. And they did it usually through cartoons. Um, and that's not a very different from other Protestants, but I'm very interested in that. And also how they use cartoons to talk about just about everything that they didn't like. Uh, there's cartoons where they, um, Pentecostals in the 50s and 60s, uh, lambasted the space program. Because it said God didn't want us in space. So they have these crude little drawings of like this person floating in space aimlessly. Right? And I'm wondering, what does that have to do with There's So there's the, all of the, the kind of wellspring of anti-science, which really comes from the Scopes trial and fundamentalism and, and that. And Pentecostals certainly flow from that, from, that uh, from those tributaries. So I'm trying to look at that. So there's the visual. So to move from cartoons into kind of websites and how they, how Pentecostals visually have captured what they view as enemies, um, how they have portrayed that. Cause there's all kinds of stuff about how they've done it via the word, mm. via their, their, their magazines and sermons and things of that nature. But I'm really interested in the kind of art, artistic for lack of a better word, uh, what they've tried to do with that. There's, there's a, a lot of good stuff about there. And then my other desire is just to kind of let this go for a while and move into completely different areas, mm. right? Because my own intellectual curiosity kind of wants to study something brand new. Yeah. And go, you know what? I want to leave this because I've been ensconced in it for 20 years. 
I'd like to move on to do something completely different, which is probably a biography of Daniel Berrigan, Ooh, who cool. was the activist Catholic priest in the 1960s and 70s. So that would be fantastic. And I hope you do that because then you can come back on the show and talk about it. Great. That is so cool. Well, Dr. Arlene Sanchez-Walsh, this has been a really wonderful time. I'm really glad that we are finally able to do this and come together to talk about your fantastic book, Pentecostals in America. Uh, Where can people find you if they want to know more about your work and follow you? Yeah, well, uh, I'm on Twitter. And you found, I think we found each other on Twitter. Definitely. So look me up. I'm there. Um, I work at Azusa Pacific University. So feel free to go on the website, drop me a line on my email. I, that's really all I, I don't have a website or anything. Uh, All of that kind of has fallen by the wayside. So much falls by the wayside (laughs) when you're, when you're in a pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is, you can reach out any, anytime you want. Excellent. Well, this has been really wonderful, and I'm grateful to you for your time on a Friday afternoon. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.